I'm Sarah Salman Dodden. On this podcast, we address some of your most pressing questions around force majeure, particularly in this unprecedented time. We are so grateful for the support of Alhai, Associated Luxury Hotels International, for their support of this podcast. Alhai provides global sales and marketing services for luxury hotels, resorts, cruise ships, and DMCs. With a dedicated team of 80 global sales executives and 26 offices across North America and Europe, Alhai delivers personalized service to a carefully curated membership of over 250 four- and five-star diamond luxury properties around the world. Thank you to Alhai for your partnership. With that, I'd like to introduce our guest, Jonathan Howe, founding partner and president of Howe & Hutton Law Firm, the law firm for meeting professionals and associations. John, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, the MPI community and our entire meetings and events community is reeling around this COVID-19 crisis that we are experiencing and really just looking for answers, particularly when it comes to contracts. Uh, Force majeure has come up, I would think, now more than ever. And uh, as we look at the coronavirus and we look at our contracts moving forward, what makes this particular health, global health pandemic different from some of the other crises that we've experienced in the past that may have caused us to look at our force majeure and cancel meetings here and there? But, you know, we're working with a different animal here. It's a different beast. So from your experience, um, what makes this different? Well, let me go back a little bit in time, if I may. Let's go back to about 1990. In 1990, we had an economic uh, slowdown that was very seriously impacting upon the hospitality industry. And one of my favorite uh, sayings that came out of that came out of the mouth of Derek Hartman Leonard, who at the time was the president of Hyatt Hotel Corporation. And the hotel industry was reeling. A lot of people were in deep economic concern. And Daryl's comment was, and I think it may have a little application now, his comment was, we need to survive until 95. Well, we made it to 95. Uh, Then we went through that period of time. Hotel business was good. Things were moving in the right direction. And along came 9-11. Well, 9-11 had both an economic impact, but more importantly, it had an emotional impact. It had an emotional impact on people saying to themselves, do I really want to go out and get on an airplane? Do I really want to go to a meeting? I really need to spend more time with my family who I've been neglecting. I think probably I need to reevaluate my, my life goals and my life situation. And so what they did was back off. In 1990, after 9-11, what did we do? We said, hey, get out of the house. Get on an airplane. Go to a meeting. Socialize. Get going. Move. Come back into the a real arena of meeting with people. Well, then between that and 2008, we had a number of health incidents. We had the Zika virus. We had swine flu. So people became concerned about their health. Now, it may have only hit certain segments of the community. Uh, With Zika, it was primarily women who were being adversely impacted if they were of childbearing age because of the mosquito infection. And the mosquitoes were only in certain locales, certain destinations. So it was more of a localized situation. So you had in that situation a health concern. Well, we have the perfect storm right now. We have an economic 
we have an emotional and we have a health concern. And we have all of those rolled into a situation which is not localized, it's not segmented, it's worldwide. It affects every person in the community, everybody who is on the face of this planet has a susceptibility to being part and parcel of the whole COVID-19 disaster. So all in all, Sarah, this is a whole different type of enemy, if you will, that we're dealing with. It's one that impacts everybody from cradle to grave, and hopefully we don't have a whole more lot of adding to the grave aspect. I cannot agree with you more. This is certainly a different beast that we are dealing with. You mentioned the emotional response portion of this, which is interesting uh, because when this first developed, I think a lot of the fear factor came in, right? A lot of it was fear-driven where the mandates weren't in place yet to not meet in groups of 250 or more, and then it became 100 people or more, and then it became 50, and then now we're looking at groups of 10 or more. So this really did progress over time, and it really varied state by state or even country by country. So as the emotional response progressed, I think force majeure obviously was looked at very differently prior to these mandates, right? How did force majeure change and evolve over time, along with the ever-changing, evolving, you know, procedures that we've seen happen with the virus as well? Well, force majeure is, it, I always like to say, sort of tongue-in-cheek, that force majeure, you know, beware of lawyers bearing Latin phrases, but force majeure is French, so I guess lawyers can play in that vineyard with a somewhat great degree of uh, safety. Not really. Uh, force majeure is probably one of the most misunderstood terms, not only by the layman, but by lawyers as well. Uh, it is something that uh, comes out of the common law, which was based upon the idea that if something over which neither party had any control made performance impossible, that would excuse performance by both parties, and they would go each their separate way. Uh, today, force majeure clauses have grown and have a life expectancy of their own. They are dependent upon enumerating a lot of things that may trigger what we would call the force majeure clause. But having said that it triggers the force majeure clause, we got to go back down to the last several words that might be within that paragraph. A lot of the force majeure clauses say, if you have one of these incidents occur, which make performance, uh, it's got to be make performance impossible or illegal. Well, uh, in a lot of situations, uh, performance is still possible uh, and it's still legal. Now with the sequestrations and the quarantines, if you will, uh, it's being made illegal. We're told no more than 50 people, no more than five people, no more than 10 people should be meeting at a given time. We have the government closing down government facilities like convention centers. So if the convention center is closed by virtue of what the government has done, Performance is excused for both parties. That means if you have a provision as to the convention center being a mandated part of your program, which is dependent upon it being available, it being no longer available, suddenly that performance is made impossible. But that's a limiting word. So we look at what are the things that come into it. And I have to say that we have looked at literally thousands of different force majeure clauses. 
And that means for the meeting professional, whether on the supply or on the planning side, you've got to look at the agreement. You've got to look at what the provisions are. And then you've got to see where that event was supposed to take place. Uh, when was it supposed to take place? How was it to be implemented? We have lots of questions, which is added to my email box. Uh, I've got a lot of emails. On, on, the, on the normal morning when I get up, turn on my laptop, and I look at it, I probably have in excess of 700 emails. A lot of them are coming from people on both sides of the formula here, the planner and the supplier, as to, gee, what do I do now? We have a new reality, and let's look at it that way. Let's face it. Nobody's going to come out of this incident unscathed. We're all going to have to pay and share a part of the risk. You know, I've been a crusader, as a lot of people know, against the concept of win-win. There is no such thing as win-win. In this business, it's based upon relationships. And what are relationships based upon? They're based upon partnership. And what is partnership based upon? It's based upon sharing risk and reward. Right now, we're doing a lot of sharing of the risk. And we have to recognize that. Uh, we're looking at a lot of contracts, people who are saying, well, if you rebook our meet your meeting at a later date, uh, we'll let you apply the cancellation fee towards that or a percentage of it. Well, one question I have on the other side is when I look at the headlines and I look at some of the information I get, a lot of hotels are being closed. Will those owners of those hotels survive? Will they be able to come back online and be able to provide the services that they're required to provide? Will that corporation that's rebooking the meeting even be around for a later day to be able to take advantage of whatever has been renegotiated? So we have a whole new reality that we have to look at. Business is not business as usual. Business is, as we're looking at it today, driven by the circumstances and driven in no small part by what we anticipate will be our best guess. Nobody has a swami hat or a a, a fortune-telling booth that I think is going to help us get through this. We all have to recognize, work with each other, communicate with each other, set deadlines as to when we have to make decisions, communicate, communicate, communicate. We don't like dealing with the unknown. The way we overcome that, communicate. So for those listening, um, because I think you you bring up a lot of great points and you're giving some really great advice and you mentioned, you know, some hoteliers, for example, may be getting creative with their cancellation, you know, crediting the cancellation over to a postponed meeting rather than fully losing out on that business. So in this instance, right, like for, for those that are listening, they're fi- they're trying to figure out those creative ways to attempt to sustain some of the uh, revenue, but then also be good collaborators, be good partners, maintain the relationship, all of the above. I think those are all things we want to do with our clients. What is a good example of that? You know, what would be your advice to say, you know what, this is a good way to proceed forward um, with hopefully the least damage done from both a relationship standpoint, but then also financially as well. Well, I I think a lot of it, well, let's face it, we're dealing with a lot of this purely looking at it from a financial standpoint. Let's go back to the, 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 the perfect storm. We have two other factors we have to bear in mind. We have to consider the emotional and we have to consider the health. Uh, nobody wants to put somebody in jeopardy of 
endangering their health or more importantly, challenging their emotional capacity to being able to deal with this. My feeling is that we have to judge each individual case on an individual case-by-case basis. Uh, And it will depend in no small part on what is going to be driving the bottom line discussions that we have. Financial is key, of course. Uh, We have perhaps, if Congress gets moving, of coming up with some financial solutions of providing help to the small business. And, you know, a hotel may not sound like small business when you see the big red M on the outside or a hilt or whatever, but it's really small business. Many of these hotels, most of these hotels, are owned by individuals or small REITs, real estate investment trusts, or small groups. Some, sure, are owned by pension plans and the like, but we have a lot of independent hotels, mom and pop operations along the roadway that are really being adversely impacted. They're, they're laying their people off. The services within that hotel, will those people be available later, even though they've been furloughed now? My thought is, and my suggestion is, you need to sit down and talk it through. Is your group going to be willing to meet again? Let's, let's take, say you have a trade show and your trade show is scheduled for, let's say, April 1st. And your decision now is, do I postpone that April 1st trade show until, let's say, November? Well, now does that November trade show begin to cannibalize your next 2021 April trade show? Uh, So we have that kind of decision-making that we have to do. One thing I suggest very strong, get out your contracts. Go to what is the cancellation provisions in that contract. Take the worst possible case. Assume you have to pay all those amounts of money that may be there. In some cases, ironically, uh, and this doesn't sound like something I would suggest, but in some situations, you might be better off going for attrition because that may be less than what you're going to have to pay from cancellation fee. Do the math. Then the last resort, too, is you have insurance. Maybe pull your insurance policies. Talk to your insurance broker. Talk to your lawyer. The key element now is getting good advice based upon what your documentation shows and trying to figure out what would be the best possible case for both you and the party on the other side of the contract. This is, we're going to share a lot of risk together, and we need to recognize there is no win-win here. It's going to be, how do we minimize the adverse impact on both parties, and then plan for the future? This is an interesting statistic that was conducted through a survey sent out by MPI, where 73% of the respondents said that they don't know if their force majeure contract, if contractually, if uh, communicable diseases were covered under their force majeure. Does that statistic surprise you? And also, you know, we mentioned coronavirus is not the first type of virus that we've dealt with before. So why is it that we don't know or that we don't include that in our cancellation clauses? Well, let me make this sort of tongue-in-cheek comment. I'm surprised that uh, there are 27% of the people out there who feel that they know what they've got with uh, infectious disease. Mm. Uh, That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say about 100% of the force majeure contracts that are out there, we've got to really seriously evaluate because a lot of factors come into play. When was that contract signed? 
Was it signed before we knew that there was going to be a COVID-19 or after a COVID-19? Signed after? Probably not going to be covered. It's a pre-existing condition. Uh, if it was signed before, what are the conditions at the end? Did that make the meeting impossible or illegal? Or are there other avenues by which you can escape? Again, this is something that cannot be answered with a one-size-fits-all. It's got to be carefully scrutinized, reviewed, and evaluated because it may be time and place and the people who are coming to your meeting, just as I said, a lot of municipalities, a lot of states have the shutdown, shelter you know, shelter in place. That might be a different factor. There are states that don't have shelter in place. Uh, a lot of states are reevaluating what they're doing. The key element right now, and I think this is really important, is from a public health standpoint, what we're trying to do and what I think government is trying to do is let's get ourselves serious about this. Let's limit the opportunity for the spread of disease. Let's hope that we can reach a plateau and that that plateau is within the realm in which we can properly treat it, that we have the facilities, uh, the respirators, we have the masks, the gowns, et cetera, et cetera, that are going to be able to be used. The key element right now is we don't want to have a sudden surge that takes us above the availability of the services that we do need for purposes of treating from a humane and from a public health standpoint, those people who indeed do come in contact and do become subject to the disease so that the care facilities are out there. I think anybody right now who's saying, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead with a program is nuts. Put it bluntly, that's my opinion. You don't want to go ahead. You want to look at what you have, look at your deadlines. And then we have to evaluate this on a day-to-day -day basis. Every day, every minute, every second, we're going through a change. So I think it's, it's so premature to make any kind of deal. Now, if you have a meeting, let's say in September, you have certain key dates that you need to make a decision. Letting people know when you're gonna make the go or no-go decision is important. That's pretty easy in a lot of respects be able to make that determination. If you're doing an exhibit or a trade show, one of the times that you have to have people get their freight moving, be able to get to the exhibit hall in time to install their booth. If you have people coming internationally, are they even gonna be able to get into the country with their materials? Uh, we've had a couple of trade shows in which they're dependent upon people coming from China or coming from Europe for trade show, and their trade shows are a ways off. We know right now, that in a lot of these situations, no matter what time we're gonna plan it for this year, those people are not going to be able to make it because they're not gonna have their booths made, they're not gonna have the facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So let's look at the whole picture. Let's take a hard look at what's on your plate, what the times are being realistic. We need that reality factor coming into play. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, some of these later meetings that would be taking place, let's say in fall, in the fall of um, 2020. So for those meeting professionals that are listening to this podcast and are in that sticky situation where their meeting seems like it's far enough in the year, um, you know, hopefully with fingers and toes crossed, this would be well past us by then uh, and we can proceed to business by the fall. How how do you know if your force majeure is protecting you that far down the path? The Look easy back. answer to that is you don't. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's, there's no hard and fast rule overall. Uh, equally important is you don't know if your insurance is going to cover you for that as well. And you don't know if you postponed your meeting and you've amended your contract, whether that contract now will allow you to escape then uh, because of the pre-existing condition aspect. So we have so many what ifs that deal with this whole concept and area of force majeure. Again, I, I, I can't emphasize enough, Sarah, that the key element here is you got to look at it pragmatically and realistically as what is going to be in the best interest of you, your organization, and equally importantly, the people who you're going to be asking to come to your event and the people on the other side who may have to supply your event. So would a planner then need to assess all of those risks and share that breakdown with their vendors from uh, their hotels or convention center to, you know, AV companies to, I mean, like, how do they start having that communication in order to maintain the relationship and be fair across the board? I would say the first thing you want to do right now is sit down, pull all the documentation that you have together, put together what your worst possible case scenario is. Put together what are the critical timelines. Put together your thought as to, let's say you plan to go ahead in September or October. Realistically, do you think all of your people are going to show up who said they were going to show up in, let's say, February, March, April? Uh, probably not. I mean, we'll have an aftermath. We'll have we'll have a penumbra around this as to people saying, eh, I'm not really sure. We don't know what the recidivism is relative to this disease. If you get it and you survive it, does that mean you won't have it again? Does it mean a lot of other things? I think the key element now is, you know, you look at the, look at the flu. Uh, the flu kills off a lot of thousands and thousands and thousands of people within the United States every year, millions in fact, worldwide. Uh, we have means by which we try to minimize that impact by vaccination, et cetera. But still, we have a lot of deaths that come from flu. Um, we would never be able to consider a flu epidemic as coming within a force majeure because it's a fact of day-to-day life overall. Is this now going to be, with COVID-19, a fact of day-to-day living as we go forward? Will we be able to say we have a vaccination or we have a, well, not a cure necessarily, but we have some medicines and medical aspect that will help us minimize the impact of the disease on the health and safety of people going. We don't know. That That's, again, part of the problem. We do not know. And that's why we need to sit down, evaluate our worst possible case, look at what our risk is financially and otherwise, and then we make the decision, how can we best minimize that financial impact working with our vendors, working with our speakers, working with our AV people, working with our attendees, and if you're an association, our members, or our employees, if you're a corporation, or our customers. Uh, we have all these things we have to take into consideration now, and the sooner we do it, the better off we're going to be. And I will say a lot of people have done this to date. They have their own spreadsheets that they've done the evaluation. They've consulted with their financial people, with their attorneys, and they're going forward. And, and the key element now is ask. Get good advice, but keep in communication. 
And even if you don't know the answer, let people know you don't know and that you're evaluating, you're doing the best job you possibly can under the circumstances and you're going to let them know as soon as you know what that outcome might be and what you're planning on doing. Yeah, this is uncharted territory for literally every single person. <laughs> there ain't nobody on the face of the earth who this is not impacting. Yeah, that's a, I know it's it's overwhelming to uh, to accept that and to even accept that as a reality. So uh, I know you have your hands full. You are getting hundreds of emails <laughs> with questions just like this conversation has gone down. So thank you for all that you're doing. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to leave our audience with? Any final words or advice? I think you, you've given some really great information overall. Um, but if there's anything else that you'd like to, to share with our MPI community. Face-to-face -face meetings will not go away. We're human beings. We have to have that social intercourse and the ability of being together with people. It's going to change how we do that, perhaps, but it will be there. As MPI says, when we meet, we change the world. And two things I would suggest very strongly, keep the faith and stay well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm going to give you some time back in your day so you can get back <laughs> to back in your day too. <laughs> Get back to those emails and thank you for all that you're doing to uh, maintain some common ground here and some balance as we're all trying to navigate the waters. And, and thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll see everybody in uh, Grapevine at uh, WEC in June. As always, you can learn more on the coronavirus resource page on MPI.org. Thanks again to Alhai for your support and your partnership.